culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. So the most important thing as a leader is creating a culture that everybody believes in, that everybody lives to. And that culture is the foundation for building a business. And because if you always say shit's going to happen, it's what you do about it. What you do about it is the important thing. And culture is the driver of how you do things. Most business owners and entrepreneurs are secretly sick of hustling. And if you are too, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Hustle Less, Profit More podcast with me, Mickey Anderson, where we're revolutionizing success because you should have it all. Business success, lasting wealth, freedom, and fulfillment. Join me on this quest to uncover the keys to defining and achieving success on our terms so we can all hustle less and profit more. In life, there are people who have massive impact on who we become, the way we look at the world, people, and where we fit in. In this very special episode, I sat down with someone who has been one of the biggest influences in my life. I learned almost everything I know about leadership, culture, business, and people from my dad. He is now a retired CEO of multiple large global enterprises. He's taught leadership at prestigious schools across the United States. He's been chairman of multiple boards, and he is one of the most charismatic and influential leaders I've ever met. I'm so proud to bring this episode to you and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dan Seeley. I'll give some context to the listeners. The original concept of the podcast was for the two of us to sit down on like a somewhat scheduled basis to just chat, to have an opportunity for me to absorb and learn from all of your experiences over your many years of working up the corporate ladder and running big enterprises. However, life got in the way. And uh, so I just went with that for a while, but here we are. And yeah. I feel super grateful that I get to stay here and chat with you. Yep. Me too. Chat. What I'd like to start off with a little bit is for both the listeners and for me to learn a little bit about how you got to where you are, how you worked your way up and kind of made your way through to becoming the CEO of major manufacturing enterprises and teaching all sorts of cool stuff. Like give us, give us the, the long story. Long stories, long story in two minutes. I grew up um, in the country. And, uh, and learned how to work by working for the neighboring farms. And I started shoveling shit at the neighbor farms. Some days it feels like I've spent 36 years shoveling shit. <laughs> well, you learn how to bailing hay and uh, work on the farms. You learn what hard work is and then I carry it through. But I was playing hockey. Hockey was a big part of my life back then. And, uh, then I did industrial engineering at Fanshawe College. And, and then I started at a company called the Woodbridge Group. I spent 24 years there. It was a great run. I think in the 24 years I was there, we went from one, one plant to 60 some plants around the world, spent four, almost five years working in Europe, headquartered in Germany, um, in an office in England, um, and had many roles from engineering to costing and finance to sales and marketing, general management operations. And then senior management roles. And in the end, I, when I left, I was, uh, head of the automotive business in uh, Detroit 
and um, it was a great 24 years. I was very fortunate to have some wonderful mentors there um, and learned an awful lot. Then I went and joined a company in the spring of 2008. I took over a company called Peterson American Corporation. Um, didn't know when I took it over that the economic crisis was going to hit in 2008 and nine. Um, and, uh, in the first two months I was there, steel prices went up 50% and we converted steel to springs and whatnot for many markets. The, the business supplied 12, 14 different markets from automotive, appliance, agriculture, heavy equipment, racing. And then in September, Lehman's crashed and, and we had two years of craziness. But it gave me the opportunity to fix a broken company that uh, needed fixing. We got 10 years of change done in about a year, which was a lot of fun. And then in 2019, we sold the company to a private equity outfit and uh, way surpassed the valuation we were hoping to get. So it was a pretty good deal. And then I was on the board at Cadillac Products and the CEO of Cadillac came down with cancer. He was a good friend of mine and he asked me if I would uh, step in and, and cover him for a short period of time, which turned into three years. It was great three years. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think the best part was mentoring my friend's son, who was a, is not was a brilliant engineer and, uh, mentoring him to take over the company, which he did this year and, uh, and he's doing a great job. And throughout all that, I sat on various boards. There's uh, two boards that represent the automotive industry, OESA and uh, MEMA. Um, and they, uh, MEMA is a broader thing than just automotive, but uh, represents the, the entire supply industry. So I was on those boards, chairman of both of them. And for a short while, I, I was on the uh, Michigan State Advisory Board for the business school. That's where I got my MBA. And now I retired. And loving life. <laughs> Good to sit here and chill out with me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing the things I want to do now. So yeah. Even in just that short introduction, I learned things about you that I didn't know, which I knew was going to happen. Like um, what? Well, like I didn't know that you had had so many varied roles within the company at Woodbridge. Oh God. I, I definitely thought you had like a one shot track. I didn't know that you, you got to move around and have that experience of learning in those different departments. Oh God. Yeah. That was the, the brilliance of management there. They gave you lots of opportunities to learn and without the experience at Woodbridge, I would have never become a CEO. And of course that was the mentors. I had pretty good mentors and it made a huge difference. Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, because I think for, at least in my experience, finding great mentors is not an easy feat. No, I've given a number of talks on leadership over the years, Michigan State Business School at various places. And one of the themes I like to spend time on is building a personal board of directors for your career. And that personal board of directors should include people from various backgrounds, some people in your company, some people out of the company, community people, whoever it is that you think you can learn from. And many times in a career, there's, there's challenges and you can't go to the water cooler and bitch about things and expect good outcomes. Uh, having someone to download to on the outside that can, that doesn't have baggage or bias, just someone to listen sometimes makes the, the difference you need. You know, and I get it. I, I've definitely been fortunate enough to have some mentors in different areas of my life, especially in sport. That was, that was the first place where I really experienced that. But 
But even over the years, I've been really lucky. That being said, as you're coming up in the field, I know for myself, getting the courage to ask someone or find a way in, like how, what in your experience, have you ever had someone come up to you and they just gave you either a great pinch or there was a great way for you to realize like, I need to mentor this person or I, I want to mentor this person? Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the, another theme I push a lot in my leadership talks is about networking, whatever industry, whatever market, uh, whatever community you're in network like crazy, because you're going to come across people that can help you people you can help and people that you can learn from. And I had a young uh, guy took over a family business uh, in Michigan and he, he had heard my talk, uh, leadership talk at a young leadership council in, in, in Detroit. And he reached out after and said, can I use you as my, one of my directors of my personal board? And of course. So I do stuff like that and, yeah. but people should, you should work at it. And it's, sometimes it's not formal asking someone. It's just, you just build a relationship, meet for a coffee and just talk. It doesn't have to be organized or formal. Sometimes the very best inputs you'll ever get are informal. And I think that's the big misconception that I've heard from a lot of people where networking, there always has to be an end game or an outcome that you're looking for. And what I've found, at least for me, is the best networking I've ever done had zero agenda. And it was just about meeting people and seeing who I liked and trying to spend time with them. Absolutely. Same in even formal in business. I think some of the best outcomes I got from business relationships is when there wasn't a specific agenda item. I mean, many clients or customers, I would go and visit them without any issues. Because you're going to have to go visit when there's issues, whether it's economic issues, whether it's supply, whatever it happens to be, those are tough. But if you're doing that, that when there's no issues and building a relationship, it makes it so much easier, so much better. It builds trust. Yeah. What if you could pinpoint some of like the big either lessons or learnings that you had from your mentors uh, that you're either really grateful for or that you learned the hard way, what comes to mind? Well, I'm sure there's lots. When I go back to this, the leadership traits that I believe in, it was how I built those beliefs that I, I quote from my mentors, whether it's being humble, right? No matter what situation you're in, be humble, be clear and consistent and genuine. Those are things that really make a difference in, in a career and uh, in relationships and, and of course, honesty, integrity right at the top of the list. So I, I learned all of those by watching and working with the mentors I had in my career. And we talk about leadership skills a lot in business in general, but in life also. And sometimes it feels a little bit abstract. It's like you, you recognize that you need to develop these character traits or lean into these areas of your life, but how they connect is so vast and deep that it's really hard to like pinpoint, well, the skill led to this. When you're talking to young business owners or entrepreneurs, people just starting their career about developing those leadership skills, what are you teaching them or what are the key things that you want them to take away from how these leadership skills can impact their lives and their businesses? Yeah, I think when I coach young folks and I'm, I still do it, a lot of it is, is just how you manage the personal challenges of being a leader. So 
gentleman that I've been working with for the last three years, taking over as a CEO, uh, it's a, it's a very, very challenging experience, um, both personally and business wise. And so you, I spend a lot of time talking about managing your emotions, managing the things you can control and don't let the things you can't control drive your day, drive your emotions. Cause there's always going to be a lot of things that you cannot control in business. I mean, we, you see it in, in, you know, the economy today, whether it's inflation or COVID uh, policies or volumes of business or labor shortages and, and in the list is it's quite a long list, energy costs, freight costs. Um, so much of that is, is not controllable by any uh, business leader. It's what you do about it. And, and then behind all of that, it's how you do it. How you do it is so important that it's one thing about being a leader in a company is everybody's watching you. I mean, you can't go get a cup of coffee without everybody watching. What's your move? What are you saying? Who are you talking to? Uh, so you have to be cognizant of that. And, and, uh, another trait that I believe in is optimism. I mean, it's the most contagious thing in a, in a business is, as a leader, no matter what's going on, you have to be optimistic because people will follow your lead. If you walk around thanking and groaning and, and uh, bitching about things, everybody else is going to do the same. And that mood show up at your customers and you can't let, let that happen. You have to be managing that whole emotional thing. And then your personal life, being a, a leader. Uh, whether it's a CEO or a senior leader in a business, your personal life many times gets uh, put down to second place or third place. And uh, you have to work hard at finding balance in that. That's something I pushed a lot when my, the companies I ran, pushing down to everybody to make sure that they have balance in their lives. Because there's going to be times when, when shit happens, because it does. And uh, you're going to need them to pile on the, the hours. But when it's not, Give them time. You know, if their kids have a baseball game, go to the baseball game or the soccer game or whatever it is, because there will be times when they can't and you better give them a, when they can. So, uh, balance of life. So, yeah. A lot of people see work life balance as like this um, static thing where it's like it's always the state. I always have this many hours of work and this much time of free time. But I think that's, um, it's not true. No, no. It, it, it's up and down depending on what's going on, right? And uh, you better take advantage of it when it's in, in your favor and know that there's going to be times when it's not. And, and you need to, whoever your partner is, your spouse, your, your partner, your friend, whoever your life is with, uh, communication and make sure they know what you're, what you're doing, what you're going through. Cause they're the ones that at the end have to put up with it and deal with it. And then when, as your career, as mine has, I've I retired now, um, they're the one you're going to be with yeah. whoever that partner is. And it's very important. So, and it, and you've noticed, I haven't talked at all about learn how to read a balance sheet or a financial statement or, you know, learn how to read an engineering drawing or learn how to whatever those things are all important, but as a leader, you're mostly building a team around you that can fill those gaps. So another thing you need to know is what you're good at and what you're not good at and build a team that fills the gaps. You don't want all. A type people, you don't want all people, yes, people, whenever you're building a team of any kind, small business, big business, whatever it is, it's different than building a hockey team, right? You have to have some people that are the grinders in the corners. You have to have some good defense and you have to have some goal scorers and you better have a goal 
and building a business team is exactly the same thing and focus, focus hard on what you do well, have other people pick up where you don't. So that's some of the general stuff I, I tell, uh, I tell people that I'm coaching and uh, people that have worked for me and I've had people follow me through my career. So I think, and I think it works. I think people enjoy that type of environment, uh, work environment. Um, you know, my, my buddy Don, right. He, yep. I think we've worked together 32 years, maybe. And he was with me at Whitbridge, went to Peterson with me. And then he came to Catalan with me. He very smart, very successful uh, sales and marketing executive. I think he enjoyed and blossomed in the environment where he knows that here's what I need and what I expect go. I'm not going to micromanage. I'm not going to, you know, and, and you see, so you find those, uh, those people that, uh, can work in that environment and. Yeah. When it comes to leadership, a lot of times we focus our conversations or focus the topic on how we lead others, right? Uh, how we're driving others to take action and do the things we need them to do. But I think a huge component of leadership is really self-leadership. It's knowing and managing yourself. Oh, absolutely. How you lead your own life because people just learn through watching this. They do. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I've never believed in, in micromanaging, but you'd better, your people better know that, that if you need to, you can jump in and help. You can roll up your sleeves. If, if sales needs help, engineering needs help, if the shop floor needs help, you're able to jump in and roll up your sleeves if it's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most important thing is in fact, not to set what I really find important is setting the, the longer term goals. You said you do a strategic plan. Here's what we want to be in five years. Here's the goalposts at each year. Go. I'm not going to tell them what to do next week or next month. They know what, what we're trying to achieve, what that goalpost is. And my job is to set the cadence of how fast we go, how fast we push. One, one thing that I learned, um, is don't set too many goals. Mm-hmm. I've seen situations where people would set 30 goals. And they would do 15 of them half-assed and 15 they'd never get to. You got to be very, very careful setting goals for a company, set four or five main goals and let people go. And then as you work down in the company and there's more bigger teams, you can break that into nuanced elements to support it. But that's more of the advice I'd give my, uh, the guys I work with and gals I work with that, you know, you. You can't set crazy expectations, expect uh, results. Yeah. There's um, a gentleman, Ryan Dice, who has a good quote about that. And he says, don't build half-built bridges. You really just need to build one really strong bridge and then just keep building bridges after it. But a whole bunch of half-built bridges don't take you anywhere. You make me think about the foundation of success and it's culture. I mean, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. So the most important thing as a leader is creating a culture that everybody believes in, that everybody lives to. And that culture is the foundation for building a business. And because as I said, you know, stuff's going to happen. You always say shit's going to happen. It's what you do about it. What you do about it is the important thing. And culture is the driver of how you do things. And uh, you got to be creating a culture where people want to come to work. They enjoy it. They're driven and focused. Um, But along with that, there's a bunch of guardrails on how you treat each other, right? We don't allow people treating each other poorly, for instance. You have a culture of integrity, hard work, discipline, excellence in, in all the things. That also, there's some context to that I think that's needed. Companies don't need to be 
professional level experts at everything they do. Every company needs to figure out, you know, what it is they do, how they make money. And they need to be, whether you've got professional league, you've got triple A, you've got minor leagues and house league. You need to have a successful business, know what elements of your business need to be at the professional level. You need to know what elements it's okay to be at the AAA level, but also know which ones it doesn't matter that they can be my house league or, or minor uh, league and, and it, it's okay. You, you can't be an expert in everything. That's what back to the point is don't set too many goals. Don't set too many expectations that will ruin them all. Right. You think about various companies like Apple at the professional level, they have the most creative products and, um, but operationally they outsource everything. They don't need to be professional at making stuff. They figure, yeah, there's uh, experts out there. They can do that, but we've got to focus on making sure we continue a stream of creative products that the market wants. When you're starting to develop a team or starting even just a business and it's just you, a lot of times we kind of forget about culture because we assume, oh, I'll figure it out when I get a team. But I think it's important that we understand what our mission and our values are because that directly influences our culture. As a leader, how do you start to develop or build culture? I think it, it goes back to your personal beliefs, right? You have, you have a personal belief system of, you know, how you want to operate your life. And, and operating a business is just an extension to that. You believe in, in uh, integrity. You believe in being genuine, humble, clear communication. All the traits that, that, that make you a good leader, they're just extensions from your life. Right? Because if you're, if you're not honest and genuine, if you're one of the, if you're trying to be somebody you're not in your personal life, you're likely going to have a problem in your work life because you end up doing the same thing and it doesn't work. And so to me, it, there's, there's no difference between your personal character and the culture that you drive in the company. Isn't it possible to have like a healthy, strong culture with people who have different beliefs? Oh, absolutely. You can set, but to me, the culture, it's the core beliefs. Like, I think you can be from different backgrounds. Cause that's certainly one of the things I learned in my life is that in today's workforce, you're going to have a lot of diversity, diversity in backgrounds and languages and experiences in culture, in education. And you have to know how to operate within that and be able to motivate, build a team, set direction, deal with issues. There's always issues. And, uh, and that's one of the biggest fallacies when young people get into management, right? And the only reason there is management is because there's problems. No, seriously. Right. If, if there weren't problems, you wouldn't need management. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, it's true. I mean, shit's going to happen all the time. It's how you deal with it. And that's, I keep reminding some of the guys that, that have worked for me over the years and some of the people I've mentored that just get it through your head. Shit's going to happen. It's what you do about it. And then what you do after. So you have an issue, come up a crisis, whatever it is, and you, you need to handle it in a certain way and you do, then you need to step back and say, okay, um, is there anything we can do if it's a controllable or not, sometimes they're not controllable, but if it's controllable. What can we do to ensure that issue doesn't repeat? That's hugely important because, uh, yeah, and stuff's going to happen and you got to deal with it. A debrief. Yeah. After action report. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 
you know, for most commonplace, we would do those if there was a safety incident in a factory and they're always, they happen no matter how diligent you can be in your safety protocols in a plant, human nature seems to step in. And anytime you got people involved, it, it can happen. And so anytime we had a safety issue at a plant, we would always circle back and say, all right, understand exactly what happened, why it happened, what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. Then we would communicate that out to all the other factories so they could see, oh, okay. So things like that. And I mentioned human nature to me, that is the most fundamental management issue for leadership is human nature is so consistent and so repetitive. Hum, I mean, for 5,000 years, human nature has been pretty, pretty consistent. And so as a senior leader, you're always managing human nature. And in my travels around the world, whether I was in a factory or at a bank or a customer or a supplier or whatever it was, human nature repeats itself around the world. It doesn't matter what culture or race or country, human nature is prevalent and that's what we manage. So what can leaders and management do actively to understand and mitigate challenges with human nature? <sighs> mitigate. I think. There's two paths here. One is if you work hard at creating a work environment and a culture, it mitigates quite often the human nature issues that come up and bite you because yeah. you're creating an environment where it, it I don't want to say controls it because it's not a control. It's, it's just a, you know, a way of living, so to speak. And the other thing is be a student of it. You, you must, as a leader, uh, continually uh, hone your skills at understanding human nature, because you got to know when you're managing people, which person needs the arm around the shoulder and a quiet talk versus the person that actually responds to a kick in the ass. Mm. There are two different people. And respects it too. Oh, no. And you need to, and, and everything in between, right? So be a student of human nature and use it to your advantage to get the outcomes you want. Yeah. There was a great um, quote that this reminds me of is it's manage the people, not the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you have to know your team, know what's going to make them thrive and then trust them enough, set off guardrails as you mentioned, but trust them enough to do the job. And as long as you're taking care of the person, the outcome usually takes care of itself. It does. If you have the right culture, if you've set the goals that are clearly understood by everybody, what you'll find is that there's going to be this path that people weave uh, down to get to those goals. And you may have taken a, a different path, a straighter line, a more crooked line, whatever it is. But as long as people are within the guidelines or the boundaries that you've set both from a culture perspective, from a operating perspective, people will also feel in that environment more ownership mm -hmm. too. And, and that pays off huge dividends when people feel engaged and in, in part of the, uh, part of the team and own it and when you get the outcomes, it's a whole lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Because a leader, a CEO of a company, we don't do anything. All, no, seriously, all the achievements are from the team. And so you celebrate, you cheerlead, you coach, because they're the ones actually doing the work and achieving the outcomes. You know, all you're doing is shepherding them along and saying, here's, here's where we want to go. Here's how we do it on the way. But the real crunch. I mean, in, in our business where we're industrial manufacturers, we're just overhead. The plants make the money. They make the parts. They make the money. We're just overhead. 
you talked about how Woodbridge, for example, went from having one plant to 60 plus plant around the world. And I mean, it feels like a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it was fantastic growth. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was fantastic growth led by some really smart people. Um, and, uh, yeah, highly successful. So how can we replicate that? How do businesses grow and become successful? What, what are the key things? I think, yeah, I think, yeah, <laughs> it's a real no, question. No, answer. it's, it's the reality is that for Woodbridge, and there was a lot of examples of this in the world. And specifically there was a bunch of examples of it in automotive, the stars aligned in the late seventies, early eighties, where there was a transformational change in the car companies where, you know, up until then, everything that went into a car, it was built in the car company's plants. And they started because at that point, labor costs were rising fast and they decided to begin an outsourcing program and a number of components from interior seats and interior trim to some powertrain stuff and various components within the vehicle car companies started to outsource it to suppliers who could have labor costs half of what theirs were. Woodbridge happened to find itself in that timing where there were some opportunities to grow dramatically and they did and took advantage of it and did it very well. And that blossomed around the world. And of course they went on to expand into additional product lines within you know, this chemical conversion world, they were converting polyurethanes into various products. And uh, so the stars wand, it's very important. It's if you want to grow a business, you have to also find a place where the opportunity for growth exists. Like the soil essentially. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we, we were fortunate with Woodbridge that the environment was there, the right people to take advantage of that environment. And uh, it's become a wonderful business. Yeah. So for a startup who is looking to build a fast growing team, but not, not like quite quick and burn, they're looking for a long-term company, something that they can, you know, build a legacy. When we're looking at the environment, what are the key things we should be looking at when we're starting a business to make sure well, that we're set up for success? Back to Woodbridge for a second. One of the reasons Woodbridge succeeded was because the underlying culture mm. was for a long-term business. They weren't looking for quick returns and get out. They were looking to build a long lifetime business. So, you know, you got to start with the right, the right culture, the right mindset. If you're going to go into a business, know why you're doing it. Are you doing it to build a, a lifetime business or are you doing it for build something up, sell it two years, sell it five years? Cause there's a lot of that happens out there, but know why you're doing it to be honest with yourself. Yeah. When we see an opportunity arise for rapid growth. So for example, a lot of businesses had the, I, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but COVID became an opportunity for a lot of businesses to thrive. A lot obviously suffer from it. Were there specific businesses and industries that really were just opened up to a whole new level of growth because of COVID-19 and, and all of the dramatic changes across the globe? What can these companies do all of a sudden the stars align what can they do to ensure that they're able to jump on that? They better know your business. I mean, the, the most important thing about being successful is you better know what it is you do that makes money, mm. right? What's your business model? You got to know how, how in your business you actually make money and focus like crazy on that because 
if you get distracted and try and do too many other things and you lose focus on what actually makes the business work, what makes the business make money. So you can lose control quickly. And that happens way too often. And uh, but know what business you're in and why you're doing it and how you make money. And whether it's in, in you know, wellness or healthcare, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's a service business, whatever it is, you better understand what business you're in and how it works and focus on that. Cause you know, we've talked before about time is money, just working hard isn't going to make a business succeed. You have to work hard at the smart things, the things that make a difference, know which things make a difference and the ones that don't, don't waste your time on. I mean, it's back to this professional league, triple A minor league house league, know which ones you need to be professional at and know which ones are house league and don't matter and don't waste your time on. Yeah. So. One question I have released to this is when we think of understanding the thing that makes us money in our business, you see a lot of businesses who do that and they focus on one thing. And then all of a sudden something happens and that one thing is either no longer in demand or no longer possible to deliver. The old bungee whip. Yeah. How do we ensure that we have diversified revenue, that we have a stable company if, if that one thing that makes us money all of a sudden goes away? Yeah, you've got to pay attention to the business you're in and, and, and what's driving the future. So you think about the automotive business today and this push for electric vehicles. So for the last hundred years, there's been all kinds of companies making engine components and transmission components and down the road, they're not going to be part of the automotive industry at some point. There's a, they've got time right now, but they better be thinking about, all right, if the drivetrains are going to be electric or hydrogen, how can I convert the things I know how to do to that place, to that market? And, and you got to know your markets well enough to know when, you know, I've got maybe two years of this product, I better come up with another one. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes tricky to do depending on what you're doing for a living. But you think about the world today and the demographics, the boomer generation from a percentage of total population is the biggest of the bunch. Boomers, zoomers, millennials, generation X, etc. It's, it's almost a pyramid going down in terms of volume. All of a sudden you've got this massive population of boomers heading into retirement. So. You think, okay, where's the opportunity in that? What's, what services, what products does that boomer population need and drive to where the markets are? Mm. You, you got to figure those things out. And if you're in, for instance, appliance, you can see what's happened in the appliance world, becoming more and more computerized. You know, your fridge keeps your inventory for it and talks to you. And but so you can look at any industry. And as I mentioned, the boomers and how that would appear in, in service, healthcare services. I mean, there's going to be a huge bunch of people around the world, not just here in Canada and the U.S. in industrial markets, whether I say appliance, you talk about agriculture, we're into massive farms now, and we're talking about autonomous tractors. And there's a lot more of to farming than just driving a tractor. So there's all kinds of opportunities to uh, allow industries to improve. And, uh, so depending on which one you're in, know your markets, your customers, and uh, prioritize. Well, it sounds like, and I'm going to sum up and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like having almost an ultra long-term perspective, looking for problems that can turn into opportunities, <laughs> and then leveraging what you love doing, what you're really good at, to try and find solutions and create opportunities out of those. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah.
and being in, in, uh, throughout the whole thing, be true to yourself, right? Live to your character traits that, that you believe in and, uh, build on those and it makes life a whole lot easier. You know, um, as your daughter, <laughs> a study almost, um, over the years, there are a few things that I've noticed that I, I'm both grateful that I noticed and learned from you, but also really curious about, um, because like you and mom didn't come from hugely successful, wild, rich families and have all sorts of wealth and fame. You guys worked really hard from the ground up and built not just your life, but our lives too, and built a legacy around that. And I'd love to know, <laughs> uh, selfishly, um, what were the key things that you did to stay on the right track, as well as secure your financial health and uh, over the years? I wish there was a, a, an answer that said, I had this great plan <laughs> and I stuck to this plan. I, I never had a plan. I, I just worked hard. And I mean, that, that's the one thing that I think your mom and I took away from our upbringing was just work hard, whatever it is you're doing, work hard. And then we learned along the way, obviously we had parents that, that taught us to be good people, to have strong characters. Once we got working here, mom in, in healthcare and me in industrial manufacturing, we had mentors that taught us along the way, all the things that we needed it was kind of a work in progress. There was never a big plan. I mean, we always had dreams and aspirations of someday we would like to do this or live here or live there. I mean, when the European opportunity came up, we were 32 years old and asked to move to Europe. And we didn't know what we were doing, right? No, seriously at that, I mean, when we got married at 22 and had, had you, we were no more prepared to be parents than prepared to be professional baseball players, right? Like. <laughs> Um, well, your mother more so in the baseball scene, yeah, but, yeah. uh, um, yeah, we, there was no grand plan. It was really simply about the basics of hard work, integrity and character and be fearless. I mean, that's one of the things I think that, that made a difference for us. And a lot of that, your mother coached me into when opportunities would come, it's like, yeah, let's do it. What the heck? If all sales, we still have each other. Yeah. So there was a, a lack of, of fear of trying new and different things. And every opportunity I got to try a, a new job, whether it be at Woodbridge, where there was many different jobs I did, or jump and try and run a company like Peterson American, it was just be courageous because, right? Uh, if it fails, it fails, who cares? But just keep trying. Yeah. And we were fortunate that we progressed and, and opportunities came that allowed us to get where we are. One of the things that I noticed uh, over the years, but I think now reflecting upon it, that kind of st stands out for me is the fact that you guys were never afraid to both understand and admit your shortcomings and seek out other people to help you in those places. Absolutely. That was certainly for me, um, the mentors I had at Woodbridge, they, they teach you that, right? They were, you know, I was very lucky to have the mentors I had that be humble. Uh, know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, get help. It pays off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could give like a pep talk to a group of entrepreneurs, startups who are solo operators, they're, they're on their own, they're starting a business, they're taking a risk, they're jumping in, trying to build something from the ground up. 
maybe they're managing another job on the side or they've taken a big risk and are doing things. What is one piece of advice or one thing you would want to tell them as they take steps forward into this kind of leadership journey? One thing. Yes. Most people answer this with a list, but I always say one thing. Yeah, I'll try. I'll I'll come up with the think about the one thing that if I only got one thing Mm -hmm. that I could pass on. Courage. Just be courageous. And your courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is having the fear and settling up anyway. Right. Because we all have fears. I mean, throughout my career, there's lots of times I would get into something. Like when I my first CEO job taking over Peterson American. I had no clue what it was like to be a CEO. Now I watched the CEO at Woodbridge, the guy I've worked for for most of my career. And you learn by osmosis, I guess. But, but I was terrified, especially when I get there and the economy falls apart, mm. right? In 2008, 2009, there was nights where I was lying awake, looking at the ceiling, thinking I made a huge mistake. Looking back now, it was the best thing that happened to me. I learned, I learned an awful lot. So if I would, if I had a list to give people other than one being having courage, it's back to the whole character thing, live your life and your work with character, always learn. You can learn every day. I'm still learning every day. And so, you know, don't be afraid to learn and to be optimistic, be courageous, be uh, humble, uh, clear communication. Um, yeah. It's funny because when I think of you and and mom kind of watching you both over the course of the years one of the things i noticed was even when stuff got rocky or rough like you always had a personal sense of assurance maybe that like even if it all fell apart like we're gonna be okay we got each other we're good people we'll figure it out it was like a grit underneath it all it's like even if they strip everything away from us we can still we're still gonna be okay and I think like if I learned anything, it was as I was being courageous or taking risks or facing failure or coming out of failure, it was like, know that even if it all gets taken away, like, I can still figure it out and, and start over or do what I got to come to work. Absolutely. You reinvent yourself many times in your life because of the bumps in the road or the roadblocks or the failures, because back to human nature, we're all human. We all have our, our, our shortcomings, everyone. And it's focusing on what you can do and what your strengths are. Don't get hung up on your shortcomings. Yes, everybody has them. And I think when we learn from our parents, we learn from the people we worked with. And you learn as much in your career, you learn as much from the people that do it well and you, you want to emulate as you do from the people that don't do it well. And you go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to live that. It's, um, there's just as many examples of the negative as there are the positive that you got to drive towards the positive. Love it. Drive towards the positive. There's a great quote and it was like, optimism is a force multiplier. And I think about that a lot, both in my life, but then with when you can leverage optimism to get people moving and rolling, it, it can absolutely strengthen whatever it is you're doing. Absolutely. And I mentioned that earlier in the, in the talk about optimism is the most contagious uh, thing. And, and you know, I remember, I think it was 1981, or was it 90? Well, one of the recessions and the uh, chairman and owner of Woodbridge, the company was struggling and in trouble, like every company during a recession. And us young fellows, we didn't know it because he would be continue and our, our CEO, or they would continue to be positive and optimistic and like, yeah, we'll get through it. It almost felt like 
they insulated us from the trouble with their optimism and it worked. We weren't as stressed. Sure they were. So I've taken that forward through my career about, you know, so when in 2008 and 2009, when uh, the big uh, recession hit, every day I'd show up at work, you got to be positive because I didn't want my team coming in terrified. I want them focused. We're focusing on the things we can control and driving our plan. And I don't want them lying awake at night, worrying if their job's there tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, that's on me. You make different decisions when you're scared when you feel at risk compared to when you're optimistic and you have trust, right? The decisions you make in your everyday life will absolutely significantly change depending on those two perspectives. Oh, sure. And so I think if you want to make the best possible decisions, right, you got to try and force yourself and push yourself into that optimism and trusting side, because otherwise you're going to make short-term, rapid, emotionally driven decisions in everything you do. Yeah, I used the 24-hour rule. That's what your mom taught me. Got me too. The big decisions for her teaching me, it was more about purchasing stuff. You know, anything over this value, take 24 hours. But it, it can apply to, to your business world as well. And there's times when you're forced into making quick decisions in business. But when you don't have to, put the emotions aside, come back the next day or two days later and look at it again and see if you come to the same conclusion. And often you don't. Patient. Patience. Patience is, is huge if you have that privilege. Mm. Some businesses, you don't have the privilege of patience until you got to go with your gut sometimes. And yeah, that's one thing I'm really grateful in studying negotiation and going to school for paralegal was we learned a lot about deadlines and how most of them are arbitrary. Some are really important, yes, but the majority of deadlines you're set are arbitrary. And so you can, you can kind of use that to your advantage and not. Don't take every deadline for a life or death scenario. Take your time if you can, whenever you can. Don't put unnecessary stress on a deadline that someone yeah. made up in their head. Although I got to tell you, sometimes I'm, I, I feel I do better on, what, deadline. on a deadline and it's stress. For every board meeting, I would write an executive report to get to the board ahead of time. So they, in two or three pages, they would know everything they needed to know coming into the meeting. And I would always wait till the day I wanted to send it out to write it because I always felt that I did my best when I, if I took two weeks, a little bit at a time, worked away at it, the product wasn't as good as if I came in the morning, block it an hour, write the thing nonstop. It's a much better product. That was just me. Some people are better than the other one. I definitely do that a lot with things. I leave it. I find I'm really focused and I don't let what get into anything like I'm much more clear and concise yeah, exactly. on point when I write things like that. I, I am so the same way. It's so true. Depends on the thing, but a, a lot of my writing is, is done right when it needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for coming and sharing a drink and chatting with me today. We, uh, we're going to do a series of these because they're just awesome. I want to learn as much as I can from you yep. now that you're off and hang out with me. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll definitely dig in more. Uh, in another episode soon. Thank you. Perfect. Well, thank you. I enjoy it. And uh, it's always good to, and that's the stages of life. You're going through your career and when you get to retirement, it's no longer about what can I do? What can I learn? What can I accomplish is to, all right, what can I share? Yeah. All right. What can I pass on? How can I help others? Yeah. I'm going to soak it up and use it. In my <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in another